Welcome to episode 12 of the Pace Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with sports science manager at the Fremantle Dockers in the AFL and owner of oldbullfitness.com, Jason Weber. Hi guys, thanks for checking out episode 12 of the Pace Performance Podcast. I know I say it every time, but I've got another great guest coming today in Jason Weber. I first came across Jason's uh, blog about a year ago, and he put some really good stuff out there. Uh, kind of no bullshit approach, which I kind of quite like. He doesn't pull any punches. Uh, really honest. So I just thought I'd drop an email, see if he could uh, spare half an hour to come on, which he did. And we talk about his four guiding principles for team training design. Uh, Jason kind of gets into the nuts and bolts of uh, designing programs for, for teams. It's not the, the sinus sets and reps that we kind of all want the magic answer to. But he talks about quantification, specificity, isolation and control, which are his, his four guiding principles. Uh, we also talk about the, his, his 10 tips for getting a job in professional sport and staying there. Kind of does a little bit of a summary at the end, uh, which I think is great. He also talks a lot about uh, technology, which I know is something uh, he's written quite extensively in his blog. Goes into a lot of discussion also about relationships and working with technical coaches and physios, which again in his blog, uh, that kind of fascinated me. But before we get into Jason's interview, I'd just like to say a big thank you for all the feedback uh, I've been getting. And just like to say, if you want to keep up to date, again, a million times over, if you want to keep up to date with everything that's going on with the podcast, I will update uh, with all the new episodes on my Twitter account, which is at Pacey Perform. All older episodes can also be caught on iTunes and over at paceyperformance.co.uk. You can also listen online, but I'll put the link up to that every time a new episode comes out on Twitter. But without all that spiel that no one wants to hear, uh, here's the interview with Jason Weber, and I hope you take as much out of it as I did. Okay, guys, thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performers podcast. Today, I've got Jason Weber on the line. So just before Jason gets going, I'd just like to say a massive thanks to him for, for coming from Western Australia. So welcome, Jason. Carol, Would you mind? Would you mind just giving us a little run through on your introduction, your kind of your background, your education, uh, and where you're currently working? Sure. Um, I've been in strength and conditioning now for professionally as a, a lead SNC coach, high performance manager for, for nearly 17 years. I started in rugby um, with the Super Rugby system, uh, with the Queensland Reds, the New South Wales Waratahs. I was at the Wallabies uh, for eight years um, through the 2003-2007 World Cups. Then I joined uh, Swap Codes uh, in Australia to the Australian Football League um, and joined Fremantle Dockers where I've been for six years now. Um, as far as education goes, I did a bachelor's degree in sports science and a master's degree in sports science as well. So um, realistically, my, my background is in exercise physiology, um, in academics. Um, but I was very lucky as a junior athlete to spend some time around the Australian Institute of Sport and that's where I really learnt to lift and condition and that's uh, – I always like to be clear when we're talking to other conditioning coaches, especially young ones, that it's not just the academics. I think it's important, but, but I learnt to lift off some very, very good coaches and 
learn a lot of my running skills there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the, the big formation of my background. So how was the, the transition from between the two codes? I was pretty smooth. I think there were some there were some bumps early in probably the first year or two. There were uh, little bits and pieces of learning, and certainly um, coming to grips with a new head coach. I had at the time, so he was only new as a head coach, so he was learning a lot as well. Um, there are certainly some massive differences um, for guys in the UK. Rob and I were talking before. I think to describe AFL, it's it's the running um, of of football or soccer, as we would call it, um, but it's just on a much bigger scale. The field's bigger. The game goes 30 minutes longer than a, uh, a soccer game goes. We don't play as frequently as soccer, but obviously then we, we can tackle and, and carry the ball as well. So the contact element's nowhere near as high as rugby, but it's certainly there. So um, transition was interesting, but certainly I think the, the elements I brought from rugby, which was... Um, was really getting the guys strong has, has made a, a difference. It's certainly a trend the AFL as a whole has followed in, in recent years. So what's a normal week look like for you? I know you say that, that you don't play as much as the soccer players do. So what's a what's a normal week? A normal in-season week for us um, depends a little bit on travel, but primarily if we went for a, a Saturday to Saturday week, which sometimes we play seven-day turnaround, sometimes eight, sometimes six, would be play Saturday, recover medicals um, on a Sunday. Monday the players have off, but they, they're required to do a, a light run, just what we call an acid flush run. Um, there might be more treatment there if, if someone was injured. Um, Tuesday we would, we would run generally a, a team session that would involve um, some modest speeds, uh, a little bit of speed work on our behalf, um, between five into sometimes six and a half K, maybe a little longer. Uh, we would lift after that, um, lower body. Wednesday is generally an off-feet day, so yoga, recovery, upper body weights. Thursday again becomes another um, football session, which is much faster, more far more speed and repeat, um, repeat lactic orientated. Um, again, we would lift. Again, more power orientated on the Thursday. Uh, Friday is a recovery day again, um, and you know lots of meetings going on in all these times. Friday, if um, our lean muscle mass guys, so guys who are trying to gain weight, they would lift again on the Friday, um, and then pretty much prepare for game Saturday. So you mentioned that's yoga. On, you mentioned yoga on the Wednesday. Is that something that's come in recently, or is that something you've done for a while? Uh, no, we we've used it um, quite continuously since I've been here, probably more formally in the last handful of years, but it's certainly something that, uh, that's been a core element of my philosophy, I guess, if you like, over a number of years. And at the moment, I'm lucky I've got a, a very, very good yoga coach, if you like, um, that really fits my environment. So we, we work very hard to keep that involved. So is that something the lads buy into pretty well? I know you obviously said it's been yeah. going on for a while. Uh, they, they buy in it. They buy in very, very well. Mm. Um, it's a good, it's a very good modality for us from two perspectives, not just the, the range of motion and uh, mobility that we get from it, but um, my yoga instructor puts um, some very nice meditation elements to it. And I think all the boys, we do work very hard on mental preparation and that ability to 
down-regulate and have those recovery elements um, is, is fantastic and the boys do appreciate it. So just moving on to, I want to talk to you, I've got, well, I've got loads of notes here ready to go through, but I want to talk to you about your website, Old Bull Fitness. How, how, did yeah. that, how did that come about and what was the kind of vision for it? Um, really, I was just looking for a vehicle um, to create something behind our profession. Clearly, uh, we all exist in strength and conditioning uh, in pro, at a pro level. At a fairly, uh, it's a fairly volatile um, profession. I've been very lucky um, over a number of years to stay involved um, at a very good level. But I'm cognizant that um, there's only two jobs in Western Australia that I can do, um, of which I have one. And if I had to move on at some point, which no doubt I will, you're not going to work in one place forever, um, you need, you really need to have something else behind you. So I decided to do the website just to see if, uh, if I, I wrote my ideas down and things that I do and practice and share those, if there was a, uh, an appetite for it and people were looking to learn because, again, I, I guess as I said earlier, I see a lot of people coming out of university and having a very fixed view on things from an academic perspective and, you know, it does worry me at a utopian sort of perspective that, that people are getting the wrong message about what strength and conditioning is and it is a coaching role. You have to understand in a very practical way mechanics, physiology, psychology all in one go in order to get them what you need done with people. So. Yeah, I just tried to share that and, um, it, you know, it, it's gone along nicely. We seem to have got a little bit of momentum and uh, people seem to to uh, relate to what I'm saying. So I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to doing more as I go forward and hopefully at some point expanding it into uh, into fitness industry stuff as well. I've, I've got a, uh, an interesting training gentleman who's a little bit older. I'm 45 myself and I'm very cognizant of the some of the limitations as you get older, and I think with the, the advent of um, things such as CrossFit and the like, which have uh, done a great job at getting people into gyms and training and the like, um, certainly at, at times it doesn't suit some guys, and I think uh, there's probably something there I could help deliver as well. So that's the vision going forward. Mm. I mean, I looked on, looked on your website as a bit of a prep for this, but at the top there's, uh, there's a tab that's philosophy. Uh, how important is it for coaches to have a, a clear philosophy and it, uh, obviously it's, because it's so essential how do guys go about creating one yeah i think it's extraordinarily important i i run a mentorship program and the very first lecture I, I do with my group is really about my philosophy and this is where i stand so i always talk about strategy and tactics and strategy is is practical um evolution of your philosophy. So what do you believe? What direction do you take for any given modality? How am I going to move forward? Um, the tactics are then the exercises you choose, the repetition ranges, the distances, the recovery rates, all those. They're all the, the skills that we use to bring the strategy to life. So I think the, the philosophy and the reason I wrote it up there was to, to show people where I'm coming from. Um, I think you, I can only write from one perspective and that is what I know and understand, which is, to be blunt, rugby conditioning and AFL conditioning. I could have, I could make some comments about soccer, but I don't really know. So I wrote those things out there to show people this is what I'm about. 
Um, if you if you have a, an empathy with that and you want to hear more about, stick around. Um, and equally, make a few points about things like, you know, I, I try to write original. Um, I know there's there's plenty of strategies about regurgitating other people's work, um, but I do try to write as originally as I can. These are my thoughts. This is what I do, and as practically as possible. So, in order to develop philosophies, I think young coaches need to need to identify. Um, Mentors, whether they be practical or certainly mentors in the literature, that you're going to follow their work. And I think the number one step is committing to paper, writing down what you believe, absolutely make a statement, this is what I believe, and noting that things are going to change as you get older and more experienced. They'll get, you know, you'll refine your ideas. And some you may end up with uh, some cathartic experiences that make you change things quite radically. Um, but I think committing it to paper means you're making a statement. You don't necessarily have to show it to anybody, but it's a commitment to say, this is what I believe. And I use my philosophy every day. So if I'm in every decision I'm making, I will reflect on, is this consistent with what I believe? Am I making a decision that's off tangent? And it just keeps me centered. It keeps me down a path I know I want to go, and it keeps me accountable to myself. And while professional sport as a, as a whole is, is a very accountable environment, I think being accountable to yourself means that the quality of your work can stay at the highest level, irrespective of whether I'm working you know, in the AFL or I'm, I'm coaching somebody in the park. I would expect that uh, of myself that I, I deliver the same quality work. So I think the found, philosophy allows you that foundation. So you, you, one of the blog posts that you've put about your four, your four guiding principles for team training design, how has your philosophy uh, guided you to come to them for guiding principles? Well, I think, um, this is a, it's a really dynamic area because it really depends on who you're working with as to what you can do. Um, I've had experiences with a number of coaches in rugby where um, – one coach said to me, you know, we're not going to condition it or we're not going to do any conditioning running or, or anything of that nature. We're going to train that hard in football that you're not going to need to. I said, okay, coach, I'll, I'll back you up. I don't believe it, but I'll back you up. Let's go. And I then quantified what we'd been doing versus what we did in games and was able to prove to him quite conclusively that when you change drills, and this is where we come to some of the specifics uh, of the, the principles, when you take things away from the game, and all training represents the game at some point, just as sprint drilling represents maximum velocity running or acceleration, you know, you, you're taking elements out to practice very specifically certain components. So these principles that I wrote were really around that. So the first one, quantification, is exactly as I described. Being able to quantify what you're doing dictates what you can manipulate. The specificity really comes down to um, those elements. So as I said, in, if you're training for rugby, as soon as you take contact out, it changes the scope of things massively. So um, I have distinct memories of being involved with uh, with the Queensland Reds very early on in my career. And, you know, we had a hooker who, you know, typically very rarely ever touched the ball other than line-out throws and, you know, ruck mall contests, which is mm-hmm. you know, in some respects what you want of a hooker. But we would go to team training sessions and he would always end up on the end of these attacking lines 
And I used to argue that's not what he does. Why are we practicing that when you need him making contact with the opposition? You need him, you know, making ground through contact, not doing something that's completely non-specific to his position, which at the time fell on deaf ears. But it's something I've always pushed: is that if if we can maintain high specificity, which has its challenges, obviously rugby making contact all the time, um, you get a better result. So. It doesn't matter, not everything has to be high specificity, but you've got to understand at what time you're doing highly specific drills versus what times you're not. And what sort of blend that those two things have really comes down to the philosophy that you build with your coach. And none of this can be done by yourself. You can't, you know, I can't have a, my philosophy and this is what we're going to do because it does come down to the coach and it depends again on how much skill practice they want to do versus conditioning practice. And I would say in my current experience in AFL, the more specific you can get your practice uh, and your conditioning, the far better you go and the far more effective you can be in a shorter period of time. When it comes down to long seasons and players that are really at the end of their, their physiological threads, I suppose, you want to optimise that time on the field. So you want to know that you've got 30 minutes, 40 minutes on the field, whatever it is, that you're getting banged for your buck the whole time and not wasting time. Um, the isolation principle was really relates to specificity. And the more you practice a single element of a play, the more you become imbalanced. Again, at times you need to practice restarts. You need to practice lines. That's fine. But at some point you want to get everything operational together. And if you can modify or control the amount of isolated drills. Too many isolated drills throws you off kilter. A good balance between isolated practice, <clears throat> excuse me, and then your more complex and, and specific drills, the better you'll go. And then the last principle is really the um, the, the power broker one from my perspective. If, you, if you've got control, influence over the very the, the details, volume, intensity, density, and frequency training. If you can control those, then you really have the opportunity as a conditioning coach to monitor within a football structured session what they're doing. And if you, you know, I'm very lucky. I work with a coach at the moment who has um, tremendous insight into, I guess, our profession and how we operate. We're able to generate work of that nature where we can say, yeah, we want to, we like to push a little bit more aerobically. So we'll do this to the drills, you know, we'll drag them out, we'll, we'll increase the density of the training, but we'll drop that velocity way. How are we going to achieve that? If we, we want to do more speed lactic, we can do these things to the drills that will we'll change that. So they're really the four key points that I tried to convey that, uh, that help coaches, help young coaches start to get their team sessions online. And it really, does come down to helping educate your football coaches, your your team coaches, because they rarely, rarely think of these things because it's not their directive, so to speak. So number one, you mentioned about quantifying training. With so much technology kind of more readily available and cheaper, what's your (coughs) most, I mean, it's something you talk about in your blog quite a lot as regards to technology. What's the most, from your point of view, the most vital piece of technology that can be kind of utilised um, as an SNC coach? I think 
with certainly with where I'm at and is the, the GPS units. Um, and they're not, you know, they, they probably need to come up with another name, but the GPS, the accelerometer, uh, the magnometers, all those, those tools can be used really effectively to quantify what you're doing in training. And I think from where I'm at and the situation I'm in presently, they're, they're the key element we utilize on a day to day basis without question. Um, but with reference to technology as a, as a general point, I have pushed the point recently and I certainly lost a few people who read it. I think young coaches coming out of university and starting their career need to understand how to do basic things, how to do time and motion analysis with a stopwatch and a one-on-one video. That's the way we used to do it. You know, how do we quantify it? Start, stop, stopwatch, describe what they're doing. Because those are fallbacks because they're like, they're, they're the basis of your skill set. When the technology becomes available, well, then that just makes you that bit better. But I do fear at the moment for, again, young coaches that I see, that I interview. I, I hired a new coach uh, just this past sort of season. And some of the people I saw there really had no idea about coaching. They were just totally reliant upon these numbers, um, which, as I said, I think they should be used to, as I've made comment before, accelerate your program. And that's not the basis. That's not where we start. Um, same in the gym. I, I I, I really love the gym aware system. I've been involved with those guys since their outset, their outset as a company and fantastic um, piece of equipment. But again, I think the core elements of teaching someone to lift correctly, to get the right postures, to apply force quickly through the ground is not about how fast you can move the little bit of fishing wire. It's effectively how your hip moves across your foot. And Getting those things right are far more important to me than uh, just pursuing numbers. And I think uh, there's been enough um, examples in recent years of AFL of, of coaches who've just chased numbers and it falls apart. I think, again, part of my mentorship program, we talk a lot about mechanics. Um, I don't profess to be a, a track expert or any of that nature, but you've got to get within the, the limits of what a person can learn, you've got to get them mechanically as efficient as possible. You get that mechanical efficiency, then you're going to get performance. And then that performance down the track, you can measure with technology. Um, certainly when you look at things like force plates and the like, they can definitely help with quantifying you know, your ground contacts and the like. Um, but again, uh, and even you know, ourselves have talked to our coaches, um, being able to visually make sense of what that contact, when that running, that doesn't look right. That guy's ground contact is poor. He's not coming off that left foot as well as he should. Um, they're things that you should be able to pick up as a coach. And as I said, I think the, the addition of technology amplifies that down the track, but good coaches start with good skill. Yeah. I mean, it's something I spoke to Mike McGuigan about in a previous episode. Um, there's so, like you say, there's so much uh, monitoring going on. How has your delivery to the technical coaches changed? Because at the end of the day, if, if that delivery isn't what it should be and it doesn't influence training, there's there's no point. So how has yes, how has really. that how has that uh, your delivery to the technical coaches changed 
as technologies come in. Yeah, I I, I agree with Mike. I think um, we've got a, a lot of numbers, a lot of numbers, um, and and really what we've worked on at Fremantle is trying to ensure that again, based on our group philosophy and where we're at, what numbers do we really value? What numbers do we know that when they change, they present risk? And we approach from a, a, a holistic perspective, if you like, a number of different angles. But the idea is to build a case. So I, I rarely jump at one piece of information. Um, but if I see a piece of information is down, well, then I want to know more about that. So if I um, if I see that a player's um, game data from the weekend, their, their high-speed running is up, quite significantly and out of character, well, then that would lead me from Saturday to come in um, when the data's processed on the Sunday for me to say, okay, where's this guy at now? What's what's injury clinic look like? How's he pulled up? Is he reporting any particular soreness? Well, hang on, now his reach has gone down by two centimetres on one side. What's happened there? And, and you know, we might he might, um, you know, have any number of issues going on, but you start to build a case. And so if I'm going to the coach and saying, well, look, coach, I think we need to modify this this athlete, it's because there's three or four things feeding that decision. Um, it's never one specifically. You really have to paint a picture and not dissimilar from the point earlier about educating to the coach's body of knowledge. The coach has to value things as well. So if you go into him and start ripping off, you know, he's HRV, he's doing this and that, and the coach is going, well, what's HRV? Well, you're in, you're in a bit of trouble. You really need to get the coach, the senior skills coach on board with what you're doing, what it means, and, and what we value. Yeah, it seems really a simple thing to say education is the key, but from your experience, how do you deliver that education? Is it getting them in front of a PowerPoint presentation or is it getting them out? Looking, no, at the, looking at the testing equipment and actually getting them involved. No, it's personal skills, mate. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's spending time with the person. And early on when my coach now um, was new three years ago and really as soon as he got in the door, um, I was making time to sit with him and go through one thing at a time, don't overload him with information. He said, you know, what have you done before? He knows this, 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 and this. He knows five things. Okay, I can't add six. Here's the sixth thing. This is what we look at. Okay. And in my case, um, very lucky coach was able to um, pick up on a number of things very quickly. And um, within a short period of time, we were able to demonstrate beyond doubt that those things were effective and from there he's I built he's built trust or I've built trust with him and he now has confidence in those things. So he's embraced those numbers. Um, I would say the same thing for me at the moment of GPS, that I can describe things to him in the middle of a session that he effectively uses it as a speed a speedometer. He knows how the group's going. He asked me, you how is that drill? Where are we at? How are we going? Um, so he's cognizant of an accountability being placed on him to keep the drill at the right tempo. Um, so that it's a, it is education, mate. It's ne- for me, it's never powerpoints, mm-hmm. but it is it is about and this is again for me a coaching skill. 
you've got to understand the person. You can't sit there and point your finger and say, I know what's going on. This is our philosophy. This is how we work. Where are you at? You know, you've, well, my coach had come from another successful team. Okay, let's build on that and take it to another level. And I'll be, mate, I, you're dead right. It is easy. It's easy to say. Um, not all coaches get it. My previous coach to this didn't get much of it. And to be honest, I, I didn't share a lot of it with him. I would simply, if I knew there was a strong case for a player to be out, I'd get the doctor to help me go in and say, well, okay, mate, this is where we're at. Let's get him out. That's it. Um, you've got to work within the bounds of what that person presents. So you've got to learn to read a person. You've got to learn to understand where they're coming from. What's their background? What do they know? Um, and, and build that team trust. So it's never, it's never simple. And I have seen guys go in to coaches meetings with the, I guess, highfalutin academic sports science hat on. And it actually, it's like hitting a brick wall. They get nothing. You got to get in the trenches with these guys, get an empathy with them and, and get them on your side. If it, if it means, and I read a really good blog the other day. Um, the gentleman's name eludes me at the moment. I'll think of it at the moment, but he made a great point about HRV and saying, well, it's a great tool, but it doesn't fit my environment. And his wasn't coaching, but you may find that certain things that everyone else is using and looks really good in all the papers doesn't fit your environment because of <clears throat> a reason with the coach. And that's, I think, the skill in all of this and putting your program together and managing it is making sure it works for your environment because they're not the same. Mate, I had eight years at the Wallabies and what I do now at Fremail is not the same. There are common elements, but it's not the same, irrespective of the game. Yeah. I mean, okay, it's a question long, can't I? <laughs> no, that's fine, mate. That's fine. So you talked a little bit about, well, a lot about your relationship with technical coaches. How does that differ when it comes to physio, the relationship between yourself and the physio? I know it's a, another blog post. I feel like I'm jumping about yeah, a little bit, but, um, yeah, it's something that kind of fascinated me when I read it. How's that kind of developed over the years? Yeah, absolutely. Again, I, I was um, incredibly fortunate to work with some great physios from very early in my career, and I, I genuinely mean healers. I don't mean people who just come in and, you know, go through the motions. These are healers. These are people who can put their hands on people and genuinely make a difference for a lot of different reasons. And there's some great skill sets. Um, so from those people early on, um, and this is back when I was with Australian 21s for three years back in the, in the, you know, mid, mid nineties. Um, I learned some great hands-on skills. So back back those times, you had to speak like an old man. We used to travel with a doctor, a physio, and myself. There was no therapist. There was none of that. So I did all massage. When I was at the Reds the first year, I was the massage therapist on the road. So I've learned a lot of hands-on skills. I've augmented that with a lot of physiotherapy skills. Now, I'm not a physiotherapist. I don't claim to be, but I do claim to have a very strong Empathy and understanding of what they do and how they think. Um, to the extent that when I came to Fremantle, there's a, another school of thought that they used here, which I took the time to learn and I have a great appreciation for and I have great respect for now. 
So again, my personal philosophy is I invest time in the people. Um, I've got a really good three physios with me at the moment. Um, all of them are accredited sports physio. They have masters degrees in sports physiotherapy. One has a PhD, and we get on based on a mutual respect of what each other has to contribute. Um, I tend to run a, a very open environment. Please excuse my dog. <laughs> I run an open environment. Everyone gets to have their opinion. And if the opinion of the group doesn't is divided, I'll make the call. Then that's my job as the boss. And everyone understands that if I make a call, that's it, we move. Um, but having good people on board and are prepared to work as a team is critical. And that comes down to your staff selection. Um, and you, you've got to pick good people. Um, I've not hired very, very qualified people before because I didn't rate the quality of person they are. Yeah, you mentioned. Uh, I found actually getting that right is people. Yeah, you mentioned your your experience in in massage and actually getting hands on. Is that a? Do you think that's a vital part of the kind of learning process? Um, for me, I think it was. I think I learned so much about. I mean, I'd seen the anatomy. You know, I'd seen that we'd done the cadaver work, and um, but understanding tone of the muscle and how that interacts with performance. I think is fantastic. I think I've learned a lot from track and field coaches. I know quite a number of physiotherapists who are, uh, sorry, track coaches who are physiotherapists or um, physical therapists in America. Um, and understanding and learning tone gives you an insight into where players are at. Now, with rugby, I found that it was more my outside backs and my really fast guys that made a big difference. That being said, when we saw excessive or big scrummaging loads, certainly the the impact that played on the psoas, iliacus, um, that sort of musculature and your ability to recognise that tone and then impacted by appropriate treatment was critical to my understanding then of, well, okay, if that's what happened in, in the scrum, I need to reflect that when we go and do strength training later in the day or the, does the recovery modality fit that? What have I got to do to resolve that? So... We scrum in the evening, we're going to lift the next morning, but what am I going to do to get that guy to the gym session ready to go? Um, so I think the hands-on skills um, are critical, I think, to my development. Do I push everyone into it? No, I've got some guys that just, you know, not into it. They don't, and that's fine. But equally, my, young, my coaches at work who, who are open enough to it, I teach them what I know and I get them to interact with the physio. So we we have an appreciation. Um, and as I said, I think that understanding the true meaning of tone and the difference, the different ways it presents in different people is um, critical to getting the best out of your athletes. So was that, was that a formal qualification that you went through or something you just kind of fell into because no, the, the needs that's, are there? That's, that's on the job training. Okay. Yeah, uh, I look to be honest. If you offered me five one lotto, you know, you gave me ten million bucks or something tomorrow, I didn't have to go to work. Um, I'd probably study physiotherapy to be a better strength and conditioning coach. Okay. Not that I wanted, you know, the real musculoskeletal stuff. Not really interested in pulmonary physiotherapy and that. But yeah. but the the way if you could take that information 
into your training of athletes, I think it's it gets a fantastic role. And I have seen it with, particularly in rugby, with my faster athletes, the ability to get more out of them in training when they're appropriately prepared. Um, yeah, outstanding. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've we've kept you for half, nearly half an hour now, so. I'm just going to just wrap up a little bit, but just before we uh, you leave us, I want to just get your um, bit of an overview on one of the blogs you wrote late last year about the 10 tips for getting into professional sport as an S&C coach, uh, and more importantly, staying there. Do you want to give us a little bit of an overview on, on your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think um, obviously there were two articles that pertain to that. Um, I think if I was to overview it, I think the first point I made in the top 10 tips for surviving was your personal quality, your integrity. Don't ever compromise. I think you, you know, I think already tonight I've spoken enough about what I feel about interacting with people. I think the quality of the person starts everything running. If you get that right, then we can, they can learn, they can be open. Um, you know, we, we, I met with some senior S&C coaches the last couple of days, a few mates of mine from um, from the Brumbies and the Reds, a couple of great guys, and we were talking a lot about this and saying that, well, there's no point. You can't go to work every day with someone who's really smart but he's an absolute pain in the butt and it makes you sick working with him every day. You know, you've got to have, as I said, honest, respectful people, high effort, high humility. I'm not interested in, in big heads who roll around telling me how good their degree is. I, you know, we've got to be workers at the coalface and we've got to be, and I'm a strong believer in team. I can't do this job by myself. It would kill me. But with the right people in place, I can do it, which means, you know, we have to work together and good people will, will ultimately succeed. And I, and I believe we can teach them and we can all grow together and, and be better at what we do. Um, I think in terms of, of keeping your job, which is obviously I'm relatively good at, um, it's the, the head coach is something that I think I was previously not as good at and I identified it as a fault and I've improved, is your communication with the head coach, you've got to prioritise that. You've got to make sure you are close to that person. You don't have to be you know, like in their back pocket having dinner at the house every day. But I went through a period where I made sure every day I didn't leave the building until I went and stuck my head in the door and said, you know, we're all done, you know, everything's good, how are you going? And some of the conversations that flow from that about team selection, just the, the casual conversation, give you insight into what's going on, allow you to communicate again at a at a more or less pressurised environment to get your information, get your message across. And so I think that's that's always a key key one. And if I was to think of one other one that that sometimes I gets I think gets lost is you've got to get your athlete on the park. I've seen some people write posts about you know don't compromise your training because you don't want to injure people. Well. There's an old saying in sailing that I really, I really like. Uh, in order to finish first, first you must finish. You can't win the game and you can't succeed if you don't have that guy on the field at the end of the game. So you've, number one priority is you've got to do what it takes to get that guy on the field. 
if that means, you know, we're going to not do a functional exercise, we're going to do the leg press because that's what's required. I can't get this guy to express force any other way. Well, then you know what? We're leg pressing. It doesn't look good on a blog. It doesn't look good to, you know, all the, the movement guys out there um, throwing the message around. But I think from a, from a professional coach perspective, you've got to do what it takes to get it done and identify where the risks lay and try to minimise them and get them on the park. If you can get them on the park and keep them there, that's when your team will do better. And that's, as I keep saying to my coaches, you, you can looking to identify risk. What's going to get you in the, what's going to get in your way of putting them on the field and doing what they need to do? It's this and this. Well, okay, let's identify those things and eliminate. That might be mobility. It might be high tone in a muscle you don't want tone in. It might be, you know, to be technical, can be low tone in a muscle, just as debilitating and risky as high tone. So, you know, there, there's a couple of points there that I, I sort of fall back on all the time. Um, and if I was to, Take your time and, and badge one more point would be for young coaches coming out. I think academics, a base level of academics is critical because you have to understand, um, the level of detail of anatomy, physiology, biomechanics to in order to converse with a physiotherapist, with a doctor. Um, but then you need to have skill. You need to be able to lift, you need to be able to run, you need to be able to demonstrate running drills. I don't ask my coaches and myself, we don't we don't lift as much as the players, we don't go as fast as the players, but we can demonstrate it. All my staff have to go through a physical exam just to get in the job. You know, so that's that's my take on it. So uh, just one last just one last thing. What what does that what does that physical exam entail? Um and the most recent one, um pretty much Demonstrate, we started with just uh, some basic stuff. Demonstrate an A-skip drill. Show me an A-skip. Good. Um, show me a car skip. Um, what other drills would you use in, when you coach your player? Show me them. Um, again, I have a, a set structure as to how we drill uh, with Fremantle. I wasn't necessarily looking for them to do them the way I wanted them, but they had to show a, a level of skill that at least showed me they they bought into an idea of that's what I do. That's how I coach that drill. So again, it came back to philosophy. Clearly, this guy has a philosophy. He can do the drill and he, he knows where it fits. Um, the athlete, the guys then had to then, um, front squat, back squat, dead, um, deadlift, um, not with any market weight on, but had to show me the key points and be able to get the positions. Um, I did get them to, to do a power plan. Um, and again, making sure they could get into the rack, making sure that uh, principally they were executing the second pull correctly. Again, we worked on those skills and improved them, but the athlete had, sorry, the, the coach had to demonstrate that at least with an empty bar, he was capable of getting a message across. Because I have been in a situation before where I acquired a number of coaches in a role I had, and none of them could demonstrate a running drill, any running drill, with any level of competency. So how how am I supposed to administer a national level program when the people at my disposal really don't know what I'm talking about with running? And it's a running sport, or it was then. So if, if you got a guy that came to you and he was competent at 
a front squat or a deadlift, but only competent, would you insist that they spend so many hours a week improving that? I think then I'd go to the bigger model and say, well, he looked okay, like he, he had an idea. Um, and there's a bit of me that says having an idea because you went to a course and learnt it, I'm not real cool with that. Do you actually lift? Do you, you don't have to lift like, you know, five times a week, but have you lifted? Have you lifted sufficiently to have an empathy with the athlete that I know what a deadlift feels like? I know what it feels like to drag the bar up my shin. Um, I'm lucky enough to be six foot four. So when I'm talking to my AFL players who are tall, mate, you're going to have to take skin off your shins coming up because you're tall. You've got a long frame. It's going to happen. So there's an empathy with that as opposed to a guy maybe came through a course and, and won't push quite as hard as, as that. So I am very big on staff having an empathy, having a understand what it is like to step into their shoes, do the running sessions with them, not all of it necessarily, but certainly get a feel when you're doing a repeat speed session, what does it feel like? You get to that fifth, sixth rep, what does it, what should it feel like? Is that distance correct? Are the times right? Are the brakes right? Um, yeah, so it's probably a little bit more than just, but if a guy had a reasonable skill and they demonstrate a personality type and that would, in, would engage learning quickly, I might be inclined to go with them. But definitely the guy I hired recently um, had fantastic skill set. His running drills weren't, weren't great, but he's learned them exceptionally well now. Um, and he lifts on a regular base. You now he'll get in the gym once, twice a week. And he's very, very confident. He's above confident easily. Yeah, I mean, we've gone through some great stuff. Um, so I just want to remind everyone, well, you can remind everyone where they can catch you on social media. So what's your, obviously you put lots of stuff out on Twitter, you know, forwarding people to your blog. What's your Twitter handle? Twitter is at Jason A. Weber. Weber with one B, W-E-B-E-R. Um, website's the easiest place. That's where everything starts, I suppose. That's where all the, the information is, and that's simply www.oldbullfitness.com. Um, so we've got a couple of projects coming up late, later in the year that certainly um, S&C coaches who are looking to move up in the world and get more integrated management. And a lot of the things I've talked about tonight, we're, we're going to run a uh, quite a significant um, webcast project, which I, you know, I hope will be well received, but we're putting a fair bit of work into it at the moment. So. Looking forward to getting that out there. So very briefly, what, what does that entail? Uh, basically, I'm going to go through uh, myself and uh, a very good friend of mine who's been involved in conditioning in uh, in uh, English Premier League soccer and he's, he's back in Australia at the moment in AFL. We're going to deliver top to bottom how we run our environments. A little bit different, different slants on things, but talk about how we, how we today, how we integrate these pieces because they're not, again, the young coaches coming out of these master's programs you see at the moment, a lot of them see the world very segmented where it's not. Everything is related. You've got to be able to put the jigsaw puzzle together in order to get the most out of your people. And when you're running squads of 45 players and the like, it, it takes a bit of work. And, again, you need help. You need good people around you, but you need a strong system to help you build that that ability to keep, as I said, on the field. 
Yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, it sounds really good. So, yeah, I mean, it's been 45 minutes, so 15 minutes longer than I promised you. Um, no, no so I, I'll let you go. Um, and just before we go, just thanks very much for giving up your time. Um, really appreciate it. So, yeah, that's it. Thank no, you very no, much. Thank you very much for inviting me, and uh, good luck with all your work as well. Thank you very much, mate. Speak to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hey, thank you for tuning in to episode 12 of the Pace Performance Podcast. If you want to check out all old episodes, you can check them out on iTunes or over at paceperformance.co.uk. Best place to keep up to date with the podcast is if you follow me on Twitter at paceperform and all the links go out there for all new episodes. And I will check you in episode 13.